and welcome to How to Deal When the Shit Gets Real podcast. I'm Rietta. And I'm Connie. And today we're here with Kelly Engel. Uh, so Kelly, how do you deal when shit gets real? But just tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Kelly. I am older than both of you. Uh, <laughs> I'm a mom. I don't think so. I don't think you're older than us. You look so young. Thank you very much. But no. Anytime. will <laughs> be my children. I'm a mom. I'm a swim teacher. I am a marathoner. I am a special needs school bus driver at this point. Oh, very nice. And I am a cancer mom. What was the hardest thing to deal with, with your son having cancer and being a cancer mom? As you so lovely put it. The first time when someone tells you, you, and, and it was very unconventional the way I was told. It is not how it should be done. But when they first say it, you're just dumbfounded. And then you have to tell other people. And okay. that's really difficult. I mean, I had to sit and tell my husband because he was not present when I found out. And he just started sobbing because we only have one child. Mm-hmm. So it, when you first get slapped with it, it's like a knife in the gut and everybody deals with it differently. I never used to understand couples who had children with cancer or other diseases or special needs that they have a high divorce rate. And I was like, but they should be there for each other. That doesn't make any sense. They were the only ones who would understand. And then you understand because everyone deals with it differently. And I went clinical. I could deal with it as long as I thought about it clinically. If I thought about that was my baby boy, then it wasn't good. And my husband clinical, he just got severely depressed for a good six months. He struggled to get out of bed doesn't make anything easier for anybody but you know that was all he could do I I could understand that because I mean my son's eight and I couldn't imagine hearing that he could potentially die because he has cancer because you don't I mean I'm assuming at the beginning you don't know you just get told that they have cancer and you're just on the roller coaster until it's figured out so I think I might be somewhere in between the two of you, like yeah, same. depressed, but still trying to uh, be there. Be clinical. Yeah. Yeah. I could only deal with it clinically. I did not. And amongst the, the cancer moms that I know, in contact with some that I've never met, but we know each other through Facebook groups for cancer moms, the shower cry, we'll all just say, get in the shower. New, new moms will come into the groups and they'll be, I don't know how to deal with this. What do I do? And it's like, you suck it up and you get through every day. And then at night you get in the shower and you cry because no one can see you. No one can hear you. And you just let it out then. So it's the shower cry is, is how most moms deal with it. 
on a day-to-day basis. And, and we had it extraordinarily lucky. Uh, we were very, very, very lucky. A lot of other people have not had it as easy. In what ways are you lucky? I'm just curious. We're lucky in that he's fine now. He's 20 years old, going to college. He runs cross country for crying out loud. So he can run out, go out and run 13 miles and it's nothing. A lot of kids who have had cancer cannot do those things. Mm-hmm. So he lives a pretty normal life considering, but he still has on occasions concerns about the odd little, what I call gift. Most kids with cancer are left with the gift. And that is most pediatric patients get little strange syndromes or weird things happens with their guts. Um, Some kids, their bones get brittle and soft. Some kids lose their hearing. There's all kinds of weird things that can happen, mostly in pediatrics, not in adults. For melanoma kids, there's a lot of gut issues. And Ian had a lot of stomach issues before we knew he had cancer, a month before we knew. He got deathly sick and was in the hospital for four days and nobody could tell us why. And basically we learned what happened was he goes into, if he gets, doesn't happen now, it can still happen, but it doesn't really anymore. If he gets a virus, he goes into ketosis. Oh. And yeah. And he'll just start uncontrollably, violently vomiting. He just can't stop. And it's like chemo vomiting. It's painful. It's hard. I mean, I used to sit there. He would be between my my legs. I'd sit on a stool and I would hold him because it was so violent. He couldn't control where his head would go. It was it was it was almost like having a seizure and vomiting at the same time. He would go anytime he got a cold. Uh, it's just the mildest little cold. He would go into ketosis and nine out of 10 times we would end up in the ER. They called us frequent flyers. <laughs> yeah, they knew I bet. Walked in the door. They knew who we were. They go, oh, the Ingdals are here. Do you have your letter? And I would say, yep, I got my letter. Because we had a letter from the head person of metabolic disorders, the head doctor at Children's Hospital that said, this is Ian Ingdahl, he has a metabolic disorder, an unnamed, undiagnosable metabolic disorder. Give him this IV, give him Zofran to stop the vomiting, give him an IV with these things in it. And if you have any other questions, ask his mom. And so it was like, okay, so the doctors are going to ask me, I'm just a mom. It it was weird to say, and then they would say, well, what should we do, mom? And I'm like, give him the IV. And they're like, well, so we're going to have to admit him. And I'm like, no, you don't have to admit him. Give him the IV. And within two hours, we'll be going home. And sometimes they would abide by that. And other times they would say, we cannot send him 
home, he could go into a coma and die at any time. And I'm like, he's not going to, you just, he won't, I promise. <laughs> yeah. So it, very odd situations. And so I call it the gift that cancer left. And pediatric patients just get these little gifts and nobody can tell us why. It's interesting nobody- that that happens because I have a friend who her, her daughter has diabetes and that's usually what happens to diabetic patients as they go into ketosis. So I didn't realize that could happen for other reasons. And they don't know why. My, we went through years of trying to get a diagnosis or understand because for a while they thought it was because maybe his body, because the cancer can no longer absorb carbohydrates. So he went for a test to have that done to see if that was the issue. And that was not the issue. And Finally, they just said, well, there's about 10 kids in the country with this issue. And yeah, and I think a majority of them were cancer patients. And as I got to know other melanoma moms, turns out a lot of the melanoma kids have weird gastrointestinal issues that nobody can understand. Huh. It's a riddle. It's a riddle. But the older he gets, the further he gets away from the cancer, the less he has those issues. Well, that's at least a positive. Yeah. Yeah. Having him go away to college was scary. I um, bet. And if he got sick, and he did get sick his freshman year. And it was, he was scared. I was scared. I was 1500 miles away. And he called to say, take your phone off. Do not disturb because I'm really, really sick. And I'm really, really scared. And I was just like, wow. Okay. So I spent two nights up with him, just getting him through what we now know as COVID. Oh my gosh. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the COVID was even harder on him because of the cancer, I'm assuming, maybe. His entire dorm was sick. Okay. But if we didn't know the tricks that we had learned for his ketosis issues, he probably would have ended up in the hospital. But he had every single symptom that you've ever heard of for COVID. I mean, trying to get to the bathroom across the hall in the dorm, he passed out. Oh, my goodness. And his roommate found him, picked him up, drug him back in. So the whole entire dorm got sick, but he was by far the sickest of all of them. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like he he got it a little worse potentially because of what he had gone through as a kid. Could be. We we have you know especially you don't know. Don't know. What kind of influence besides him having little gifts as you call them, what kind of influence has it had on Ian? as he has grown into an adult, having had cancer as a child? It's had a big influence on him. We have worked with specific cancer groups. He was an ambassador for Pediatric Cancer Research Foundation. He would go in front of groups of people and talk about what it did to him, what it does to families. When you put a face to it and you see the child, then you're especially if you're trying to raise funds for research 
it helps to have a kid there who's who can talk about it. And so he learned to have a voice through it. When he was younger, we actually had friends of his who, when they found out in elementary school, would say, I don't want to play with you anymore because I don't want to get your cancer. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not catchy. <laughs> so it was that was hard for him. Yeah. We had to be careful because people, when they, when their kids are sick, they will just give them Tylenol and send them to school with a fever. Oh, yeah. They would do that if they would not tell me until later and we would set up a play date. He would go to the play date and they go, yeah, so-and-so had a fever this morning, but I just gave him Tylenol. I'm like, you, you can't do that to us. You cannot do that to Ian. He will get sick and he would. So you learned who you could trust and who you couldn't. Yeah. Uh, As he got older in middle school, he did not want people knowing all the kids he knew from elementary school now. And he was the only kid in elementary school who was allowed to wear a hat to try to keep the sun off of him. And that turned into an issue. Because then another mom came in who was from England, thought, why is that child allowed to wear a hat and my kid is not? They explained to her, well, he has an issue with the son. And so she said, well, my kids have issues with the son. So she arranged through the principal that we had at the time to get these hats. Oh, boy. She decided they should all wear bonnets. Oh my goodness. Bonnet. Like why? Bonnet that tied under the chin. Good lord. Cover more of their skin. Go back to England, lady. (laughs) A little tip about that. And I had a tip with the principal about that. And she said, Well, I don't see a problem with a hat, Kelly. And I said, That's because you're a 55-year-old woman and he's an eight-year-old boy who has to go on that playground. With those kids wearing a girl hat. So An ancient girl hat. I dug my heels in and we had to wear the hat that they chose. So we had two hats to choose from. The bonnet that tied under the neck. Or there was a baseball type hat that had, you know, the thing that hangs down in the back. Yeah. So I said, okay, fine. He's got to wear that hat. And she said, yes, he does. That's the only hat he can wear. And I said, good. So I took my scissors out and I cut the whole thing around. So then it just looked like a blue hat. (laughs) And I got his favorite baseball team, the Angels emblem, and I glued it onto the front of the hat. And she said, you can't do that. And I go, well, I did. Too late. Yeah. Yeah. You said he had to wear the hat. He's He's wearing the hat. I just made it a little personalized. I made it better. Yep. So he's psycho. He didn't want come middle school, those lovely years. He didn't want a lot of kids to know. Some kids know, but he didn't want like everybody to know. So, and he didn't want his teachers to know. And the same thing in high school. So I would not tell the teachers until he got sick. And then I would have to send them a note to say, 
okay, Ian is a cancer survivor. This is what ha he has issues that still make themselves known. And so there are times he's not going to be able to come to school. And we would get truancy letters constantly from the state. Because even if your child is sick, unless you fill out special paperwork, and I can't remember the name of it now, even if your child is excused from because they were sick, you will get truancy. Thing. But I didn't want to classify him by filling out the paperwork that says he's sick. Yeah. So they can do home hospital school. And I'm like, I no, I don't want to do yeah. that. Yeah. A few years I homeschooled him because it was just easier than having to deal with all the truancy things and stuff. And then when the teachers would find out, they would cry. They would get, they treated him differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he would notice things. And when neighbors or when anyone found out, and that's why he didn't want people to know. He said, mom, I don't want the look. And my husband was like, what's the look? And I go, it's the look people give you as soon as they find out. And it's like, you're dying in front of them. He just wants to be a normal kid. Wanted to be like any other kid. You still, at this time, he is 16, 17 years out from cancer. Still, when people find out, he gets the look. And he just had an issue. He doesn't drink in college because he doesn't know what will happen to his body. And of course, college boys being college boys, some of them would tease him and pick on him about not drinking. And Sophie, he finally explained to one of the kids why he doesn't drink. He said that kid fell to his knees and cried. Oh my gosh. Five minutes and just felt horrible but now that kid watches over him if he goes to parties and makes sure nobody gets on him about it. happy ending so i'm used to ending but it's like still this yeah. many later mm. he's like you still get the look that's but also just proof that you shouldn't give people a hard time or judge them when you don't know what's going on because you don't know what's going on so that's just like a perfect example of that yeah. Yeah. I told him just get a beer can, pour the beer out, put water in it yeah. because nobody will bother you because they think you're drinking, but you're not. And then they just will leave you alone. I don't think he did that. It's he's too honest. And he just thought that was a lie. So I went, okay. Also, um, I think the can would still smell like beer and the water would then taste like very, very watered down beer. <laughs> and that sounds gross. <laughs> not so he wants to serve in the military so he's going to school to be a commercial pilot so when he graduates in two more years he will have a commercial pilot's license that's cool yeah and he already has his private license he's working on his instrument ratings now he's hoping to go into the military to serve for i think you have to serve like 10 years when you're a pilot I don't know how the military is going to like his the cancer. Yeah. They get the medical records, right, Rietta? Yeah, they do. But there was just a guy. Oh, my God. I cried when I saw the video. 
that graduated from Marine Corps boot camp. And I think that was his thing. He like uh, Ashley had lymphoma, Hodgkin's lymphoma. And uh, I think he got a waiver signed and uh, he was, they showed a video of him. He was just bawling when he finished the crucible in the Marine Corps. And like, you couldn't help but watch it and be like, ah. <laughs> don't understand. It's just, mm-hmm. yeah. that's what issues with kids with cancer is we met a man through a friend. I taught her kids and he had gotten cancer when he was in pre-med. He had leukemia. He got through it. He ended up going, finishing school and he became a pediatric oncologist. And he could look at it from a different way than most doctors. He started to realize The problem that a lot of cancer kids have is they will stop trying to do well in school or to look to the future because they don't really believe they're going to have one. They, they always think it's, and, and I can say more about that later, but you always think it's going to come back. They don't plan. So he had come up with an organization that would take former cancer, pediatric cancer patients and mentor them up with a kid who has cancer now or is finishing his cancer. So any questions that that kid has, they can ask them because good idea. no one else can answer the questions that these kids have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll send you the article about the Marine that boot camp and you can show it to Ian because it's it's quite a moving story you know what it would give him a little bit more hope too yeah and I I almost want to say that he was like diagnosed either like right before or like during boot camp with like stage three Hodgkins and he made it all the way through like it was it was this incredible story wow Ian doesn't worry about it as much as I do of course your mom mom and I'm worried about, well, are they going to, you know, the airlines will take him, but he, it's important to him to serve, period. So hopefully they'll look at how long he's been out of cancer and his type of cancer, you don't get a remission. There's no remission date. You are just what they call NED, which is no evidence of disease. And okay. so- NED for almost 17 years now. Is that better or worse than remission? Or like, what's the difference, I guess? (laughs) is, Is when you hit remission dates, and that's true of adults too. When you get to a certain, like if you, it's, if you're five years out, it's like, okay, you're good. It hasn't resurfaced in five years. You're good that you can start to, not think about it daily. NED, they don't give you a date. They, it, it can come back anytime it wants to. There's no, so it's just a different way of, and I did at one point, cause Ian was having some issues. I talked with all my mom friends, especially friends, good friends that had kids who were older than Ian and just say, okay, this, he's, this is happening. Does every kid do this? Or is this just my kid? He was doing things that were not normal. 
So I got in contact with a uh, psychologist or psychiatrist, I don't know which one, who works specifically with cancer patients, cancer kids. And I had a, a meeting with her and I explained everything that was going on. And one of the things that we at the time had done because he was only four, and how do you explain all of this to a four-year-old? <laughs> to boot, I did not want him to be listening to the radio or hearing the TV or hearing a neighbor saying, oh, so-and-so got cancer and they died or died. Right, yeah. And I'm like, I don't want him to think he's going to die. So we just called it the bad stuff oh. and took out the bad stuff. When I was talking with the psychologist about that, she said, you can't do that because sooner or later, he's, you're going to have to tell him. And that means you lied. And that means everything you ever told him is a lie because that's a big lie. So you have to use the word. And I'm like, Hmm. he had cancer. I mean, it's enough. I had to sit down and tell my husband and all of our family and all of his friends. I don't want to say that to him. And I told Hmm. her why. That nope, nope, it doesn't matter. You have to tell him. And she said, the hardest part for you is going to be, he doesn't have an end date as most cancer patients do because they get remission and he won't. So there's no end date. It's basically the same thing, but there's just no end date. She wasn't my mom. She was the mom I chose and she had gotten cancer. She died of cancer, but when she got cancer and then when Ian got cancer, she was explaining to me and she said, Kelly, it's, it's like you have a ball and chain on your ankle and it's always there. It'll never go away. But some days that ball is heavier than other days. That's what cancer is. It's a ball and chain attached to your ankle that's never going to go away. And there's days that you won't think about it. And then there's days you think about it a lot. And I just, oh my God, that's the perfect perfect way to put it because it is. It's always there. You're always waiting for that other shoe to drop. I mean, it hasn't dropped again. And we're very thankful for that. But that's the best way to look at it. It's hard for him because there's no end date. But I think at this point in time, he's over it all. He just wants to move on. So he got diagnosed with adult melanoma at four, like you said. What stage was it? And did they ever have any sort of explanation of how at four he got adult melanoma? Nobody's ever been able to explain it. Things have changed a lot since he got it. He was diagnosed at a Clark's level three, which I don't think they use those terms anymore. The hard part was his pediatrician saw it. I thought it was a tick on top of his head. And I went, oh, he's got a tick. I went to take it off. It's not a tick. So I took it into the pediatrician. He looked at it and he said, well, that's an odd looking mole. The chances of it being anything, Kelly, are astronomical, but let's let a dermatologist look at it. Set us up with a dermatologist. We went in to see the dermatologist. 
And he lectured me for about 15 minutes for being a hysterical parent. Wow. Yeah. And I said, okay, look, I'm not the hysterical type, but I'm paying for this appointment. So you're going to look at it. And as soon as he looked at it, his whole demeanor changed. And then I had to hold Ian's head still while he injected him with lidocaine to numb it. And then he took out a scalpel and he cut a section of his scalp off. And then as soon as he cut a section of his scalp off, he goes, uh-oh. And I went, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh God. No one wants to hear uh-oh when somebody's cutting your child. That's not a good uh, sign for a doctor shouldn't be like, uh-oh, that's not good at all. No. Terrible. And I go, what? And he said, there's more. And I went, oh my God. He stitched him up and he goes, we're going to send this to the lab. We'll hear something in about uh, seven to 10 days. And I said, okay. And I was mad because I didn't like the guy and his bedside manner. I didn't hear back from him for 14 days. And I went, I should have heard back. So I called the office and she goes, oh, we really get those back in about five days. We should have had that. She goes, let me go get the file and look. She gets back on the phone and then she goes, um, um, uh, uh, the doctor's not in the office right now. Um, so he's probably going to want to talk to you. Oh God. And I'm like, okay, you know what? Now I'm pissed. You tell him if he doesn't call me by the end of the day, I'm livid. He called me at six o'clock at night. First thing he said was, I need you to sit down and and I'm going to tell you right now what no doctor ever tells patients to do. And that is you need to go to the internet and you need to start researching this because I've been a dermatologist for 40 years and I've never seen this in my life. And I'm like, okay, so what are we saying here? And he said he has an adult melanoma. And the reason it took so long to talk to you is because I had it sent to three other labs to double check it. And none of them believed that it came off of a four-year-old boy because it takes 10 years supposedly to make an adult melanoma. He was four, never had a sunburn in his life. So he said, I, I don't, I don't know what to say. Oh my God. Wow. Well, are you going to tell me where to go to now? And he goes, I don't know what to tell you. And then he hung up. Just leaving you with, here's an adult melanoma, figure it out. Great. (laughs) Pretty much. So I, lovely. I told my husband and then once we got Ian to bed that night, I was up until God only knows all I could find was because I would do pediatric. Cause I'm like, well, how can he have an adult melanoma? He's four. And I looked up pediatric melanoma and everything in it at that time said the devastating pediatric melanoma. And you start reading anything about it then. And it was just like, these kids don't survive. Oh my and gosh. I'm, this is a rabbit hole that I don't want to go down. Yeah. And- Talked to the pediatrician. The pediatrician gave us the name of a surgeon. All of his uh, 
lab work said it is recommended that this melanoma be removed. The lesion must be excised. It's like, oh my God. Okay. So I had to find. Was the the lesion only on his head or did he have more than just that one? It says uh, here, uh, diagnosis, malignant melanoma, superficial spreading type. And then it has a bunch of numbers that I have no idea what those mean. Um, And then it says Clark's level three Breslow depth of invasion, 0.64 millimeters. Ulceration is not present. Tumor cells extended deep into the margins. And so what they excised only went 64 millimeters, 0.64 millimeters deep. He already told me there was more down there. Here's another thing. If you ever have a mole biopsied, never let them do a scrape biopsy. They have to punch it. They have to go all the way through the dermis. And this guy didn't do that because Ian was four. And so we never will know how deep it was. They couldn't give it a proper Clark's level because he screwed up. Gotcha. So we then went in search of finding a surgeon, which was no easy feat either. Nobody wanted to do it because he was four. And it was in like right dead center, the middle of his head. Oh, yeah. One surgeon we were interviewing basically said, okay, well, the issue is going to be, and I by then had done enough research that I went in and I said, I want a lymph node scintigraphy done. And I started listing up what I, and they go, whoa, 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 whoa. How do you even know what that is? And I'm like, cause I have a kid who has cancer. That's why I know what it is. Yeah. So going to do it. And that basically means you take out, you inject a radioactive isotope into the site. It follows a certain path. And it takes you to certain lymph nodes. And then you have those lymph nodes removed. And the first one that you come across is called the sentinel node. So I told him, I want the lymph node scintigraphy done. So I know if it's spreading. And they were just like, wow, okay. And they said, well, here's going to be the issue is because of its location, if it drains to the front nodes in front of his ear, And I didn't know at the time, I mean, I knew you had, you know, the lymph nodes in your neck and I knew you had them in your groin. I thought maybe you had 10 lymph nodes. No, there's hundreds of them in your body. There's hundreds of them in your head. So he said, if it drains in front of his ear, then we're going to have to take off his face. Whoa. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. To take out all the nodes we need to take out. And then we'll put his face back on. Oh my God. He could Ugh, have, it's terrifying. He could have palsy from that. So he may never be able to have facial expressions. And I'm like, okay, what if it goes behind the ear? And he said, if it goes behind the ear, that's better because then we can just go in that way and you don't have to lay the whole face open. And of course I was just like, okay, well, he goes, but I don't think I'm going to be able to find another surgeon. He goes, I can't do the lymph node scintigraphy, but I don't know that I'll be able to find another surgeon who would do it. And I said, why? And he's like, well, there's a lot of complications that can arise. 
so I looked at the doctor and I said, okay, let me get this straight. You're willing, you and your other surgeons are willing to let a four-year-old die because you don't want to get sued because he might have palsy. And the doctor just looked down at his desk and he finally looked up and he said, yes. And I said, okay. And he goes, well, if, if you would like me to do the surgery, I said, oh no, you're not touching him. So it took a while to find the right surgeon. And we found Dr. J, as we call him. He is like a member of the family. We adore him. And he saved Ian's life. I called and he talked to me within five minutes of me talking to his secretary. And he said, I don't care if you have insurance. I don't care what kind of insurance it is. I don't care about any of that. I want to see you on Tuesday. Wow. Yeah, because when he found out he was four, all he does is melanoma. He has an entire melanoma clinic at UCI Hospital. And he said, I've never heard of a four-year-old with melanoma. I was just going to ask you, since he was a melanoma doctor, if he had ever seen another four-year-old, you beat me to it. Nope. (laughs) He said, I don't care about any of it. If I have to do this pro bono, that's what I'm doing. And what I love too about Dr. J is when he would do a surgery, he would let a plastic surgeon close the surgical site. Because what I also learned too, which some of the other doctors we interviewed had said, well, what we'll do is we'll take a graph off his hip and put it on his scalp to cover up because we're going to have to take a big piece of his scalp off mm-hmm. and we're gonna have to put some other skin there and come to find out, you know what? Hip grafts don't grow hair. So he would have looked like a fryer. Oh no. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I'm like, so glad <laughs> I didn't You're like, Oh down. hell no. Yeah. Yeah. So Dr. J had a surgeon close the site and he did have issues when he hit puberty and they really start growing. Mm-hmm. And they, they might have to revise the site because scar tissue doesn't grow hair either. It was so minimal that you can't find, I mean, you have to look through his head to find it. And they took a six inch piece off of his head, a six inch circle off of his head on a four-year-old. It's, That's a lot. You know, it's a lot of head. Yeah. Um, and so when he hit puberty, bone was growing faster than the scar tissue can break down. So he would get excruciating headaches. Oh no. We went back to the plastic surgeon and he said, you know, I just, I I, I don't want to do, I don't want to make it worse. And he goes, so what I'm going to say to you is going to sound crazy. He goes, but Every night you need to sit there and just massage that scar tissue and break it down. And that is about the only way, because his bones are growing faster. That's the only way you're going to make the headaches go away. But I, he goes, I don't want to revise it because it's so good right now. You can't find the spot. I mean, it, you really, really have to know where it was and you really, really have to look. So that's what we did is every night we would sit there and if anybody's ever had scar tissue to massage, it is very painful to break. It it. is. It's, it's excruciating. 
So we would sit there every night and massage his head. And now he doesn't have any issues. And he's a normal sized head as well, any 20 year old boy. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was a long road that we had to go down just to find the right person to do the surgery mm-hmm. and get us through it. And, and the surgery itself was difficult. My, my dad and my stepmom came out and I go, no, you don't need to, we'll be okay. And he, and he said, you, you can't keep me away. So they came, they were there for the surgery. Dr. Jack Watts, that's Dr. J. His real name is Jack Watts. He came out after the surgery and he explained, even though we're going to take out lymph nodes, we're going to look inside the lymph nodes, see if we find any other cancer cells. Just because if we say we don't haven't found any cancer cells doesn't mean that they're not there. And then he had a big cabinet behind him and he put a pencil mark on the cabinet and he goes, that's a cancer cell. This whole cabinet door is a lymph node. So that's what we're looking for. And he goes, so you can end up having a cancer cell still in the lymph node. It's just a crapshoot. It's looking for a needle in a haystack. They took out seven nodes. Fortunately, it drained behind his ear. It drained right to the side of his neck. They took out seven nodes and did not see any cells in any of the nodes. And he came out of the surgery and he said, Kelly, I have absolutely no reason to be able to say this. There's no, no doctor should say this without something behind it. And he said, I just, I know I got it all. I got it all. And he goes, you can choose to treat after this, or you can choose not to treat, but he did not want to do the scans. Every most kids go through scans quarterly for so many years. And then they go biannually. And then eventually you just go to once a year. And he goes, I don't want to do scans on him because those scans have a lot of radiation in them. I don't want to pump all that radiation into a four-year-old boy when we don't know. So it was very unconventional. Nowadays, people would, would just not, they wouldn't give you that option. We didn't treat. And plus the chemo that they used at that time was very intense chemo. And actually St. Jude's was willing to take him on. Nothing would have cost it. Everything would have been for free, which is a wonderful thing that St. Jude's does. But when you go to St. Jude's, what a lot of people don't understand is you have to follow their protocol. So you're not given a choice of treatment, at least then. Maybe it's changed a little bit now, but back then, what they would do was treat him with adult doses of interferon. Adult doses are created for a 180 pound man, not a 40 pound boy. Yeah, no, that would be a no in my book too. Like, I don't think so. So I said no to treat him with interferon period. It's, it's gnarly. Interferon is the gnarliest of chemos. You know, we talked about it. We prayed about it. We just, and we just, we chose not to treat, which is scary in itself because what if you're wrong? Right. And you live with that. 
forever. I mean, I will, I, I will die questioning whether or not I should have treated. Yeah. But you know, now that he's 20 years old, he runs cross country, you know, you're like, he's doing pretty good. Didn't need to treat. He's doing really well. Kids that I knew that got cancer. I knew them before they had cancer. A lot of them have a lot of other health issues and there are cognitive issues mm-hmm. that come for a lot of kids, especially when they're that little. Yeah. And radiation, no matter what age, it really does a, a job on you. You know, it's, you'll never be the same basically and from my understanding. Radiation is they wouldn't have tra- uh, treated with radiation at all. Oh, it sorry. All- it was the the chemo. chemo. Yes. Sorry. I meant chemo. I didn't mean radiation. <laughs> we didn't know what it would do to him. And he was only four and yeah. most kids of that age that get cancers, get other kinds of cancers that are very specifically treated in specific ways. And the only way they knew how to treat for melanoma when he had it was treated as you would an adult and it was just like mm, no and I had known someone else who had a child who was treated and they he got too much chemotherapy and he died from the chemotherapy not from the cancer so I just I couldn't we couldn't do it so we were very lucky in that respect in that he pretty much has a normal life now. How much of that is because he hasn't, he wasn't treated. I don't know, but it was a gamble. I love though that the doctor told you like, I shouldn't be telling you this, but I feel like I got it all. And it's almost like it was your sign that you didn't need to treat him. It was like his way of telling you. That's exactly what happened. I mean, it's the whole day of the surgery. I mean, Ian was very, clingy because he had started having the ketosis things before two months before the surgery, all the times he'd been, I mean, in, in six months before the surgery, he'd been in and out of the hospital. I don't know, four or five times. And each time. And if we went anywhere, like before the surgery, we took him up to mammoth to go fishing because that's, his, his dream still to this day is fishing and <laughs> we take him up there and what happens? He gets sick. Of and course. so spending, we didn't do a vacation <laughs> anywhere for, I don't know, eight years where we didn't end up in an emergency room. Oh, so no. he was in the hospital in mammoth for like two or three days because they didn't want to release him. Because we did also tell them he's having surgery for melanoma on, say, Monday. And they're just like, what? So then, you know, they're looking at him. They call in every pediatrician they have on staff to come look at this kid who should be in a coma and dying with the numbers his body's pumping out. And he's sitting there eating spaghetti and meatballs. (laughs) So they couldn't understand any of it. Hospital the week before his surgery. So then they said, well, we can't do the surgery for two weeks. And I'm like, but I want 
now it's growing. I, it needs, and they said, no, we got to wait two weeks. I'm sorry, but we have to wait two weeks. And I'm like, Pah. it was hard because, you know, people said he didn't look sick. But when I look back at the pictures of him from that time frame, he was emaciated. Yeah. He was very, very skeletally thin. His skin didn't look right. He looked exhausted all the time. And he was just starting to have symptoms at the site itself. It was starting to hurt and itch, and which meant it was growing. The anesthesiologist had just come. It was her first day back after maternity leave. That was kind of like a good sign because she was super sweet with him. And Ian was so clingy. And we're like, I don't know how you're going to get him into the scrub, into the surgical room without him freaking out. So they dressed me up in a gown and they go, okay, worst case scenario, you're going into the surgery room until he goes under and then you have to leave. And I'm like, okay. And they gave him what we called happy juice. I don't know what it uh-huh. is. What they give anybody before you go into a surgery, they give you some kind of liquid that makes you really happy. And so they wheeled him out and he's like, bye, ma, bye, ma. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> We're like, oh my God. He's and, you know, cause you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, but there were all kinds of little signs. Dr. J saying, I, I know I got it. The anesthesiologist, I mean, everything just fell into place. And there were people around the world cause he had good friends that he did preschool with that had moved back to Australia. I have family members of multiple countries and there was a prayer chain going around all around the world for this kid. So uh-huh. I have doubt that they, that that played a part in all of it. I have no reason to say that. So what is one of the proudest moments of your life and why? Having Ian. <laughs> Ian, because he has turned into, through all of this, he has turned into one of the most incredible people that I know. He's just, he's a good human being. He, he does things for other people that he doesn't think about himself. And as an only child, children are selfish. Marietta, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, I, had to, I saw where you're going. I was like, I had to sneak that one in there. <laughs> no, Kelly knows. Kelly knows that I'm not selfish. Not at all. Not at all. And Ian is very similar. He is very giving to other people, but he wrote a paper for something. And within the paper, I don't know what, remember what it was they were supposed to write about, but something that changed their point of view, the way they live their life. Like, why do you live your life the way you do? Mm -hmm. And this was basically, I looked death in the eye when I was four He said, I learned from that, that you live every day like you're dying because you don't know it's, it's not a given that you're going to have tomorrow lives every day with joy. He said, my dad, who had also had cancer just two years before Ian told him, you know, you're going to have to make a choice in life. How are you going to live it? Are you going to go out there and live it every day and do your best every day and make your life count? Or you're on your deathbed, are you going to sit there and say, I wish I had it? 
-hmm. And Ian said, he goes, I'm going to go out there and know that I've done everything possible to make my life the best it can and to help other people. And I was just like, oh, what a good human being he is. What a proud mom moment. Yeah. moment. I was just like, he said the teach because he had to get up in front of the class and read it. And he was bummed that he had to do that because the teacher only picked a couple of people and he was in high school and not every school knew. Um, he said, Ma, I go, so what happened when you read that? And he goes, oh my God, people were crying. And he goes, <laughs> sat there crying her eyes out. And a couple of the girls in the back were crying and and he goes, I wish I had not written it. <laughs> I just went, <laughs> oh, he is my proudest. The, the best thing I've ever done in my life is have him. Oh, yeah. So obviously you've also been through a lot of stressful times between him being sick when he was four. And plus we all, you know, we all deal with stress daily. So what are some ways that you handle stress? When Ian was diagnosed, my husband found it difficult to get through the day. So I ended up needing to work more because neither one, we were both self-employed. So we didn't have any benefits that we could draw from. So I started working more. I started working four days a week and I was a swim teacher at the time. The pool that I taught in was 40 feet long. So I went to work every day and I worked with healthy kids, happy kids. And I just lived in the moment working with those kids. And at the end of the day, I pounded out laps, slapping that water as hard as I could just to get every little uh, out because I had to, I had to be physical. And so the pool was my savior through that time. It just, it saved my sanity and just being in any kind of stress. I mean, when everything shut down for COVID, I walked for three hours a day. I didn't know what else to do. So I just went down to the beach and walked for three hours. So anytime I get stressed out, I, I get physical with I exercise like a lunatic. And Ian does the same when he used to get mad at me when we would have our, <laughs> I would just look at him and I'd say, go run it out. And he would, and sometimes he wouldn't even say anything. He'd just get up, go in his room, come out with his running clothes on, put his shoes on. He goes, I'll come back and talk to you later. And he would take off and go run five miles and come back. <laughs> so we both deal with stress. That's not a bad way to deal with stress. You're, uh, you're yeah. getting your, your heart and your lungs and everything else healthy too. And you're clearing your mind. And I mean, you can't really go wrong. It works for me. And I don't drink liquor at all. I couldn't turn to the, a glass of wine. Necessarily a good habit either. At least the swimming and running. That's at least a good habit that you're supposed to have, right? Yes. I don't, I, I don't regret not being it. I mean, there are certain days. Yes. It's like, Oh God, a shot of tequila would do really good today. Um, <laughs> but I don't. So I just get physical and that seems to work for me better than anything. Else. And, and occasionally a good scream. And when I'm shower cry, a shower cry. And I have been known 
to sound like a truck driver and a Navy shoreman on leave uh, having a fight with each other. (laughs) (laughs) And you used to come to bar and get your butt kicked by your favorite instructor? Yes. Don't know who that would be. (laughs) So much. Yeah, I think being physical is the best way to deal with stress. I agree. That's what makes me feel good, too. Go walk the beach, go run, go punch a punching bag, whatever it may be. Yep. Yeah. I don't have a punching bag other than my husband. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) What would you say is your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? I'm I'm horrible. Horrible at holding a grudge. I hold a grudge like. I, I can't, there are just some things and some people I just, I will never forgive or mm-hmm. I just can't. It's, it's not in me and it's not a good thing. And I know it. And I would tell Ian, I go, don't, don't do that. Be forgiving because it's not good not to be forgiving. So not being forgiving is a big failure. I don't have very many regrets in life. Because well, that's good. if all those things that were not great, and I did not have an easy childhood, I was on my own at 15. If I didn't have those things, I wouldn't be who I am today. Mm-hmm. And I like me. A lot of people may not like me and that's okay. I don't care. I like me. I'm comfortable in my own shoes. So I don't, regret things but I do have some failures yeah see and that's more important anyway that you like you than other people liking you because you're the only person that you have to wake up and go to sleep with right and sadly I've kind of been this same person since high school so people tell me (laughs) when they god you're just like you were in high school I'm like well I guess that's a good thing (laughs) if not take it like a good thing it's a good thing yeah so I'm happy. What advice would you give to our listeners? For as being an old lady or a cancer mom? Anything. Anything. One of the things that I think helped make Ian, shape Ian into who he is as a person now without the woe is me, which he had those moments. One of those moments he asked me, he said, why when he was in the throes of vomiting? And he said, why me? Why does this have to happen to me? And I was like, oh, dear God, what do you say? And so I sat there. I said, okay. Um, and I named his two best friends. And I said, okay, so so-and-so and so-and-so. We'll, we'll, we'll have them get cancer. And he's like, no, I don't want them to get cancer. I go, okay, well, how about so-and-so and so-and-so? And he said, no. And I said, well, who do you want God to choose? He chose you for a reason. And you have to figure out what that reason is. And one of the things was the year Ian was diagnosed, we know 10 people who went and got checked for melanoma. And out of the 10 people, four of them had skin cancer. And they wouldn't have gotten checked if it wasn't for Ian. Wow. I said, so you just saved four people's lives. So I think that's a good reason. 
this is how to do when shit gets real. Check us out on all of our social media and our episodes come out every Friday. Make sure to rate and review us. Hope you guys enjoyed. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly.